0: O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and all the earth. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Father, would you please to bless us with the presence of your spirit as we open your word this morning. May the words I speak this morning be your words and press them upon our minds and hearts that we may come to know you better To understand your revealed word more clearly, to love you more deeply and obey you more completely, and to glorify you in all of our lives. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. How many of you have been camping? Most of you, I think, if I remember. The, The tradition here is to go camping at the end of the July in the church for years and years and years. Many of you have ever been perhaps camping up north in the UP or perhaps you've been fortunate enough to do this in Alaska if you've got a really good sleeping blanket and on a clear night without much ambient lighting from cities or civilization been able to look up at the sky the skies on a clear night and see the stars in the heavens. Is that not quite a glorious sight? Perhaps you've been able to witness the northern lights. God's own light show. Or perhaps you've wondered at the flower, spring flowers in a meadow, at their beauty. They will come again someday. It doesn't look like it this morning, but they will come. Or have seen bird, hummingbird, or bees pollinating flowers in a flower garden. Or perhaps you've been scuba diving or been able to uh, go snorkeling and have been able to see some of the fish and the creation in the oceans that our Lord God has made. It's not hard to imagine David as he kept his father's sheep in the field as a young man, witnessing God's glory, particularly in the heavens, but also in the fields and streams around him. And the Holy Spirit using those memories later in his life to inspire him to write this psalm. This is the first of the psalms of praise in the Psalter. It follows upon Psalms 1 through 7 which generally in a broad sense are speaking of the fate of the righteous and the wicked. This is the first one of praise, and it's structured as follows, and it's in your, in your sermon notes here. Verse 1, God's excellency is declared. Verse 2, God's glory on earth. Verse 3 returns to the God's glory in the heavens. And verse 4 is a central question, what is man? In verses 5 through 8 answer that question in verse 4. And verse 9 closes as the psalm opened, stating God's excellency. So let's let's do a little exposition here on this and look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and you have such your glory above the heavens. First thing to notice is the first word, Lord's, in capital letters. This translates the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God the God in the burning bush with Moses. This is our God who keeps his promise forever. The second Lord's in small case letters and His Adonai or king. In effect, David's saying, our Lord and our king. Name in Hebrew means more than just Sam or Mary. It implies character and who you are. So in this sense, this represents God's revealed character and who he is. And glory above the in heavens implies, I think, two things. One, he is the maker of heaven and earth. He has created everything. And two, he is above or outside of his creation. He is above it, all-powerful. He makes it. He is our promise-keeping, steadfast, absolute power ruler whose glory is displayed in creation. In verse 2, returns to the earth. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. A couple of things here. Babies and infants. Babies and infants are what? I'll I'll give this test to Brandon. Ian Edward is dependent on you and Christina, right? Right? for everything, for a dry diaper, for food, for warmth, for clothing. He is utterly dependent. Those words David does not cho- did not choose by accident, that is the relationship we are in with the creator God in the first verse, utterly dependent upon him. Also in this verse, it's clear that God has enemies in his creation, and he often defeats them as he says here, by babies and infants. Now, what's the implication here? By those who are weak or humble or of no account. If you look through history of Scripture, it's amazing how often God uses somebody who doesn't appear to be very powerful or imposing to do his will. Moses delivers Egypt, delivers Israel from Egypt, defeats Pharaoh, and is described in the Old Testament as what? the meekest of men. Goliath, quite an imposing dude. Slayed by what? A humble shepherd boy. Paul, maybe the greatest of the evangelists the Lord has been blessed to give us. He is a man of not much stature and certainly not eloquent in speech. And yet much of the New Testament is his writing and the spread throughout the Western world is, through a great part, based upon the Lord's work through Paul. And, of course, the ultimate example of humility and dependence is Jesus Christ and his incarnation. In his humility, in his humbleness, he dies on the cross. And there he defeats Satan, sin, and death. Verse 3 returns to the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I read this verse, a couple of things come to mind. One is the word fingers. This has the implication here of something that is very carefully and intricately made. When I think of this, I think of some of you ladies who I have watched um, or seen the results of some very intricate cross-stitch knitting, or some amazing things that you have sown, the capability of your fingers. When I watch Christopher play the organ or the piano or Christina play the piano, what do you observe? The skill that's in those fingers, right? The ability to make music, to make, to make music out of that. This implies that this creation is not an accident. God carefully makes it with His fingers. All details, everything here, doesn't come by evolution, does not come by accident. It becomes by the careful, thought-out will of the Lord. He intricately and carefully made made us and made all of creation. The central question, what is man? That you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. David, in, in contemplating the greatness of creation and of God, sees this great gulf between the creator and creation and it amazes him that with this that despite this god cares for man he is our, he we are his careful workmanship he cares for us it's written that not a hair of our head and most of my hairs have fallen out by the way but the hairs of our head do not fall without he knows it it implies from the from the previous verse that careful orchestrating of everything in this universe and in his creation and his care for us. In verse 5 through 8, proceed to answer this question. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. In summary, you and I are the pinnacle of his creation. We are made in his image. Nothing else in creation is made in his image. He has given us dominion over the earth, over his creation, over all domestic and wild animals. He has given us minds and intellect to discover, and understand the natural laws by which he governs creation. And he's given us the ability to use those laws, that knowledge, if you will, and wisdom, to make things for the betterment of our lives, for the betterment of each other's lives, and for his glory. And he has given us the ability to see him in creation and to understand the requirements of his moral law. And then the psalm will end as it began in verse 9. Now as the psalm ends, arguably our grounds for praising the Lord have changed from the beginning to the ending here. At the beginning we affirm the magnificence of the creator and his creation, and at the end we stand in awe of the unexpected grace that has elevated us, his human work, if you will, to unimaginable heights of glory, honor, and responsibility, sharing in his image, and also called to share his loving care for all he has made in his dominion, in his kingdom on this earth. It's, it's pretty humbling and it's quite an amazing song. So my first point here is that well Well, he has done this and tasked us with great responsibility. We also need to remember he is God and we are not. He has absolute power and authority, goodness and truth. They aren't a standard that God aspires to or lives up to. They are who he is. And he has always been that way and always will be. And we need to take care to remember That he is God and we are utterly dependent upon him. For he is the creator and we are the creation. That's the first point I would like you to remember. The second one, I'm going to take a couple of minutes here and and look at how has man done. One, in our charge and responsibility to have dominion over the earth. And two, in our ability to understand and obey his moral law. So I'm going to do the the moral law question first. And we'll return to verse two of our psalm. In a sense, this verse seems to strike a discordant note with the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm is very glorious and uplifting, and yet this one comes down and and has this discussion about foes and enemies, which seems seems at first glance to be out of out of place. What you see in this psalm, I think, in most of it is you clearly see, Genesis 1 and 2. And you clearly see David's allusion to that, I think, in in this psalm. In verse 2, you see Genesis 3. We see that somehow this creation God has made that originally was good apparently now has enemies and foes in it. And as a result of this, fall of man in in Genesis 3 all of creation and mankind is tainted with sin and it taints our ability to see and obey God's moral law so all of creation including the pinnacle of that creation us are now tainted with sin and as a result we are actually in absolute rebellion against the creator so that responsibility, I would argue, we have not particularly taken care of very well. This inherent sinfulness prevents us from seeing God in all of his glory and has tainted all our works and thoughts and deeds. And this is affected as I'll point out in a few minutes, how we've how we've met this second obligation God has given us, or the third one, which is to have dominion over the earth. Remember, he gave us the ability, he gave us minds and, and the ability to understand the physical laws that govern the universe and science so that we can have dominion and take care of this earth. So let's take a minute and see how we've done with that. So when you look across the sweep of history, I think you have to be pretty impressed with what man has accomplished. Let's think about travel for a minute. 200 years ago, it was by horse or a sailing ship, or you could row the boat, right? But that's basically how we got around. We now have planes that will fly three times the speed of sound. We've been to the moon and back several times. we put space station up up in space, we've sent satellites into deep space, we've sent submarines and unmanned submersible vehicles to the depths of the ocean, and I noticed that in the parking lot this morning there was not one horse tethered or a carriage parked. It's like we all drove here. It's pretty impressive, and when you consider, that's probably taken place, Leroy, in generation, you know, in 100 years, roughly, 120 maybe, depending on how you want to do the scale here. Let's let's think about medicine and biology for a minute. Most of us, Dr. Stern and I were having a discussion this morning about how, how much bigger people are today than they were a couple hundred years ago. How much longer our life expectancy is in the Western world. Think about disease. When I was a kid, polio was a real thing. Some There might be young people here who don't know what polio is. 200 years ago, smallpox epidemic went through the city of Boston and wiped out half the people in one winter. Have any of you seen, maybe excluding Dr. Stern, the doctors in the audience for a minute, have any of you seen a smallpox case? Never. It's virtually gone because of our advancements in medicine. Penicillin, antibiotics, think how many people that's saved. And I know for a fact there are several of us in here who have an artificial knee, a replaced hip, a replaced shoulder, right? Those, those things are relatively common. Or think about a heart transplant. When I was a kid, I remember Dr. Christian Bernard when he did the first one and the patient lived, and everybody was amazed. Organ transplants today are, I'm not saying they're routine and it's not a big deal, but they're relatively common. All this because of what we have been able to learn and observe about God's laws in his physical universe. Perhaps our greatest advancement, is the psalms, let's talk about agriculture a minute. We have dominion over plants and animals, I give you a test. What might be the greatest invention in the world? Put your phones away, because that isn't the answer to the question. Might well be the ability to synthesize pneumonia. Um, Not pneumonia. Ammonia. That's okay. That's an engineer, right? Can't spell. And I can't. So you ask me, well, why is ammonia important? Well, the answer to that question is ammonia is NH3. and You say, well, what's that mean? That's the chemical formula. What's important is nitrogen. Because once you have NH3, then you can split the nitrogen off. What do you do with nitrogen? You make fertilizer out of it. So it's been estimated that the amount of naturally occurring nitrogen in the world, so you know, from animal waste, human waste, whatever, if we could perfectly harvest it all, we probably could fertilize enough land and crops to feed about 3 billion people. Now you can take your phone out, Google the current world population. The answer this morning is 7.9-something billion. Now, I won't argue that there are people who are hungry in this world, but if you just think about that in scale, that's... We're feeding about three times what nature would provide. How do we do that? Because of the wisdom and the knowledge and the insight that the Lord has given us. And all of you got one of these, I know you do. This thing's pretty amazing. In about 20 years, these things have become so you can hold them on your hand I can get detailed directions to my granddaughter's house in Chicago, right, and it'll, and it'll take me right up to the curb. I can order my groceries and have them delivered. I got books and the scriptures on here. I can track the weather. I can see the radar and the weather move across the state. I can communicate face-to-face with anyone in the world. When our grandson was in India for two years as a missionary, excluding the time difference, which was brutal, we could FaceTime with him. Now think about that, 30 years ago, you would be lucky to get a call through to India, right? Let alone the ability to, to talk to him and see him in real time. You can almost watch the war in the Ukraine unfold in real time here. You do your homework on this thing, Most of us work on it. It even gives us the ability to attend the worship service virtually when we can't, when we're either sick or there's a pandemic or we're under the weather. That gives us an opportunity to actually witness the worship service. So it's it's a pretty cool thing. This is just a, a bit of a tip of the iceberg, if you will. But it gives you an example of, over time, just what man has been able to accomplish in this dominion of the earth thing. That, that side of that coin looks pretty shiny. I'm gonna flip the coin over for a minute. Let's look at the other side. The same chemistry that gives us nitrogen and, and pesticides also we use for chemical and biological weapons. And some of the effect of the pesticides long term hasn't really been great. We've harnessed the power of the atom, some for good and some not. And you witness character assassinations on Facebook on a regular basis. Something that can be a great benefit can be a great harm and personally hurt somebody badly. And it's easy to do, right? You don't have to talk to them face-to-face. You just got to type some words and then hit send. And that's not a good thing. The other thing I would argue is if this becomes your replacement permanently for being here, then you've done a bad thing because the Lord does command us to meet together as saints to worship and encourage each other. This is great when you can't be here physically for some reason. But otherwise, we are called to be here together. And if that becomes an excuse, then we're using it for something that is not good. So I'd offer a conclusion. My first conclusion here would be, technology is great. We've done some wonderful things. We shouldn't abhor it, and we shouldn't not use it. But we need to use it wisely. It is neither good nor evil in and of itself. It will depend on how we use it. But the second danger here. Is much more subtle. Um, all of these advancements are pretty cool. And you know I'm an engineer, and I'm not too bad a one, and I am particularly susceptible to this temptation. Because the temptation here is to begin to trust in ourselves. Among many technologists in the world today, when you read some of their books and some of their thoughts, many of them are of the opinion, we don't need God, if they even, if they even acknowledge there is one, that we don't need him, because we can figure this out. Look at what we've done with medicine. Look at what we've done with travel. We can solve any problem. Just put 12 geeks in a computer in a room, let them run in a lab for a little while, and then come back in a while, and they'll have the problem solved. And indeed, that's been the case many times in history. Need to remember one thing. We didn't create anything. Only God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. The universe is like a bunch of Lego bricks. All we're doing is rearranging them and making things. We didn't create any of those bricks, right? God put them all here for us to use and discover. And the second thing that happens then is you begin to have this, and it's tempting for me, you begin to think of yourself as God. I can figure this out. I can solve this problem. Matter of fact, if we work long enough in the lab and work on, uh, on the DNA stuff and, and the genes and stuff, we probably even can cheat death. What do we need God for? And that becomes the logic that you tend to play. The the other part of this in our society today that plays into this intricately is this society where this this is all about me. Right? We, we we, We walk away from this truth that we are utterly dependent upon God. This is about me. This, and my confidence in that's technology make it very easy for me to make myself God. have that temptation to make myself my own idol. We cannot, we are not God, we cannot solve our most fundamental problem. And our most fundamental problem is how to be reconciled to God the Father. Technology isn't going to fix that problem. I can't fix that problem. Ed can't fix that problem for me. Only Jesus Christ can fix that problem. With that, I want to return to the psalm for just a minute for my last point. When you read Martin Luther's commentary and his teachings on this psalm, he will argue that it is a messianic psalm, and I think he is right. Several times this psalm is referenced in the New Testament, Matthew 21, 15, 16, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, Ephesians 1, 22, and of course our sermon, our unison scripture reading text this morning. In each one of these cases, these verses point to Christ and are about Christ. In his incarnation, Father made Christ a little lower than the heavenly beings, and in his weakness and humility he suffered and died on the cross for my sins and for yours. And he has risen and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He has made it possible for us to be reconciled to the Father, to overcome the curse of Genesis 3, and to be at peace with the Father. He's done all this through God's grace and his love. And God has kept his covenant promise to bruise the son's heel, but to crush the snake's head. The Lord has kept that promise since the beginning. As I've said before up here, your most fundamental question you have to answer in your life is how will I stand in the presence of this holy creator God? And we can only stand there clothed in Christ's righteousness. So if there's somebody here or somebody who's listening today who hasn't come to Christ and accepted him, I would urge you to think about that and pray about that now. If you have questions, come seek one of the elders. We've got our name tags on. We'd be happy to talk to you. Or or you can talk to Pete when he comes back. But don't delay. Well, we've done great things technology-wise and have dominion over the earth. That will not save us. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. And that that is to God's glory. You pray with me. Our Father, grant us the wisdom to use your gifts of science and technology wisely for the good of your creation, for the good of your fellow man, for our fellow man, and for your glory. May we never come to rely upon our creations or ourselves. Help us always to remember that you are the great God and we are utterly dependent upon you for all of our wisdom, our knowledge, and most of all, for the faith that saves us. Help us, Father, to be faithful and wise servants and to live our lives to your glory. Amen. you please stand and join me in singing our final hymn, In Christ Alone.